Another edition of the American Bankruptcy Institute podcast, which feature conversations with prominent figures in the bankruptcy and related debtor-creditor world about topics of interest to our members. I am Jean Browker, professor of law at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona, and current resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. I am pleased to welcome as my guest today, Matthew Widener, of the law offices of Matthew Widener, PA, Attorneys at Law, with offices in Northern Florida. A graduate of the Florida State University and the Florida State University College of Law, Matt Widener first served as counsel to several statewide professional organizations in Florida before entering private practice in Jacksonville. Mr. Widener has been practicing civil litigation since 1999 and has represented clients in foreclosure consumer and commercial finance transactions, and other civil matters. In 2009, Matt Widener competed in the Florida Ironman 70.3. Matt has been credited by the Wall Street Journal with coining the phrase robo-signer on his blog. The phrase refers to low-level nominal officers of the mortgagee of record signing documents as if they were robots. The documents signed include declarations and affidavits filed in state and bankruptcy courts, sometimes signed under penalty of perjury, and attesting that the signers have reviewed mortgage documentation and payment records when they may not, in fact, have done so. Matt is a crusader on behalf of Florida homeowners at risk and has an active foreclosure defense practice. Today, we will be... we will be discussing continuing issues in the mortgage crisis, one in a series of conversations with experts who have varying perspectives. Many of our members are familiar with treatment of mortgages in bankruptcy and that a bankruptcy stops a foreclosure that is in process and provides breathing space to try to negotiate a modification. But they may not know as much about how foreclosure works in state court. So, Matt, I'd like to ask you, what can you do in state court for a client who comes to you when a foreclosure is already in progress? The one thing you can do is remember your oath as an attorney, and that is to fight uh, fight for your client and to uh, zealously advocate on behalf of your client. One of the things that we're all learning in this practice of foreclosure is that many of the defenses we use are brand new. We're, we're all charting in un, unclear territory, uncertain territory. Um, But whether your background is in corporate law or in criminal law or uh, real estate transactional law, I think one of the things that's interesting about the defense of foreclosures is all of these different areas you can bring something to the table. Um, One of the interesting things that we've started to do here uh, is to challenge the lawsuit from the very beginning. We literally don't get off the first page or the caption of the lawsuit 
because one of the fundamental questions we ask is, who is it that's suing uh, our client? And whether you're in a judicial state or a non-judicial state, that's the very first question you have to ask. Um, this is not your mother or your father or your grandmother or grandfather's mortgages that are being foreclosed anymore. These are weird Frankenstein de derivations of what is a very simple transaction. And because these things are so um, convoluted and corrupted, uh, that gives us opportunities as lawyers to, to defend on our clients. So it's a very rare circumstance these days that the individual or the entity that is suing your client is actually the person your client signed that contract with. So the very first thing you need to do is challenge very aggressively the uh, status of that plaintiff to be suing your client. Well, that might be um, a good opportunity to talk um, about the document problems that have figured in some important cases lately. One, of course, is Ibanez, decided by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in January of 2011, and holding that there must be evidence of a valid assignment of a mortgage to the entity seeking to foreclose, and that that assignment has to exist before the entity initiates the foreclosure. And there's an interesting concurrence in that case where Justice Cordry uh, expresses his frustration at the utter carelessness with which the plaintiff banks documented the titles to their assets. Uh, and he went on to talk about how powerful a remedy foreclosure is and how strict compliance with statutes is therefore important. Another case uh, is the Agard case, which was a bankruptcy court decision from the Eastern District of New York. That was decided this month in February 2011. And it holds that a state law judgment of foreclosure was raised judicata in bankruptcy, but the court also gave a long opinion that is dicta, uh, saying that the mortgage electronic registration system, MERS, failed to provide evidence uh, of a right to assign the mortgage to anyone. Uh, MERS is the mortgagee of record, but not the mortgagee. And its membership agreement uh, does not meet the requirements of New York law to make it an agent, at least according to the bankruptcy court. Um, now, I wanted to ask you about a case uh, from Florida. It's the Pino case uh, decided by the Fourth District Court of Appeals of Florida. Um, this also involves, um, at least initially, a missing assignment. Can you tell us something about that case? Well, I think it's interesting you say that this case was decided by the 4th District Court of Appeals. And, in fact, while there was a decision released, I would argue that it wasn't decided at all. Pino is a very interesting case, and it is indeed out of the 4th District of Florida. It's down around the Miami area. And in that case, the appellate court uh, made some very specific findings of fact about uh, uh, improprieties within the, the documents, the assignments of mortgage um, and um, the other documents that the plaintiff was attempting to support their foreclosure with. What is most significant about that decision is the fact that we have an appellate court who is asking the Florida Supreme Court, what should we do about all of these uh, allegations of improprieties and documentation? They actually mm -hmm. um, certified a question to the Florida Supreme Court. Um, 
what do we do when we determine that there's fraud in uh, in these cases? And where does that stand? Uh, will the Florida Supreme Court necessarily hear that, or how does how does the process work in Florida? Well, it'll be discretionary. Uh-huh. Um, I, the, the, the court has to. But I think what is so significant, and the oral arguments are out there. If you if you Google Pino, P-I-N-O, and uh, you can go directly to sites that have the oral arguments on there. What is most fascinating is the very frank discussion about um, the amount of, uh, which fraud permeates the foreclosure docket. And I just think it's so important that we understand this, is that, you know, it's gotten past the point where there are allegations by defendants um, about foreclosure um, of fraud. It's just accepted now that there is foreclosure fraud permeating the entire docket. Mm -hmm. Right. And that was an interesting case in that uh, there was um, some kind of well, actually, initially, I guess there was no assignment of the mortgage, but then one was filed later, and then when the defendant in the foreclosure action said uh, there's something fishy about this uh, assignment, suddenly the bank uh, moved for voluntary dismissal of the case uh, so that there wouldn't be an inquiry into the production of these documents. So it, it certainly looked fishy. That's exactly correct. And the firm that did this, who know very well, they've done a lot of good work in the state, but that was precisely the issue. Um, In many cases, when you start examining these documents carefully, you can um, find right on their face where fraud exists. For instance, Mm -hmm. the notary stamp could not have been in existence on the date that the document was allegedly executed. so there's no way around that. That is a fraudulent assignment of mortgage. The question that has been submitted to the Supreme Court related to this is when this is brought to our attention at the trial court level and now at the appellate court level, what should we do about this? And the only defense that's been presented basically is that this is so uh, significant since the magnitude is so great that um, we have to be careful about uh, how we treat this. Mm -hmm. That to me is the the most significant thing about this is in the entire argument and debate over foreclosure in this state and probably across the country, we've quickly moved past any argument or discussion about the extent to which fraud and questionable documents um, are part of the process. Mm-hmm. Now we are dealing with what is the consequences? What will our courts do when confronted with all of this? Right. And um, in some of the pleadings, um, the, the representations were made that uh, you know, the consequences, the severe economic consequences for granting the extraordinary relief in some of these petitions um, was untenable. Yeah, and I I think uh, it's important to notice that in the Pino case, the the court says that one of the things that would be appropriate would be referral of the attorneys to the state bar authorities. So lawyers certainly have to be awfully careful uh, about particularly continuing with these documents that are dubious, given that the courts are now really paying more attention, perhaps, than they did a while ago. Well, that's exactly the case. And again, the, the, the statement out of the Pino case, I think, is so important. It says, we conclude that this is a question of great public importance, as many, many foreclosure, foreclosures appear tainted with suspect documents. 
that's just such an incredible statement to put in an appellate decision, is that the appellate court is now concluding that many, many foreclosures appear tainted with, with suspect documents. And mm-hmm. what does that say about our court system, our system of justice, when um, this is so pervasive? Um, I think certainly as attorneys, we all need to be aware of, of allegations of fraud and abuse and these sorts of things. The question remains, what are our bar associations going to do about this? Right. Now, there's um, also, I think, a question, and maybe you're not the one to answer this, but I'll ask it anyway, uh, which is, what can the servicers do to fix the problems in the chain of title at this point? You know, if they don't have a valid assignment and MERS doesn't have the authority to make an assignment, how can they clean this process up without uh, using fraudulent documentation. If we talk about the mortgage industry all across the country right now, we should be mindful of a phrase, you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And I think that is the problem confronting uh, lawyers, servicers, lenders, homeowners, legislators, judges all across the country. Um, Our uh, real property system is broken because uh, these documents, basic documents, assignments of mortgages and other documents that would evidence transfer, were not done uh, properly or timely. Um, for for years now, and now we are um, smack dab in the middle of a crisis. Uh, if you want to liken it to a ball game, I don't know whether we're in the second inning or the third inning, but every inning we get into, we realize more and more problems. I think that um, examining this all across the country, um, it is clear that in a great many of cases, I don't know whether we should say majority of cases, but certainly in a, in a vast number of these foreclosure cases all across the country, it is evident that none of the documentation was done correctly, which would show ownership or grant standing or interest in proceedings to these plaintiffs that are currently pursuing foreclosures. That is a massive problem, and it's, it's only a problem that we're coming to grips with now. Um, and, you know, legislators are realizing the, the magnitude of this problem. I think the trial court, uh, trial court judges across the country have continued to, to be aware of it. But now appellate courts and increasingly into federal courts, um, the magnitude of this problem is becoming apparent. Well, one possibility is that these document problems might lead to uh, more settlements that uh, produce modifications that might permit uh, more homeowners to stay in their homes. And along those lines, just today, there are news reports that the Obama administration is working on a settlement uh, with the servicer banks uh, to get them to write down principal on underwater mortgages uh, in settlement of some of these these documentation problems and to agree uh, to take the losses themselves and not pass them on to investors. What do you think of that idea, and what kind of breaks are meaningful to uh, the homeowners, the mortgagors? 
let's keep in mind that uh, all of the modification programs thus far have been uh, abject failures. We have had very, very low success rates in getting uh, loans modified. Uh, Timothy Geithner was in front of Congress not so long ago, and again, it's just become a part of our, our wisdom now that, that modification is not working. Uh, in states that have mediation and in other uh, states that you know, people have aggressively been trying to work through modification, the biggest problem has been that you cannot get a plaintiff on the other end of the table that has the authority, uh, much less the willingness, to enter into a modification agreement. And that is a problem that uh, remains throughout the entire process, is that um, finding entities or individuals that have the authority to um, modify the loan at all, much less do a principal reduction, has been very problematic. And that gets back to the heart of the, the documentation and the paper problem, is that because these uh, transfers of, of loans into these pools were not done properly uh, years ago, uh, now as the plane has come crashing down, uh, they can't fit. They, the servicers and the lenders and the investors, can't figure out who has the real authority to uh, modify these things. Mm -hmm. Had you know, numbers of cases, and of course, all across the country, where um, it makes every bit of economic sense in the world to modify a mortgage, reduce the interest rate, get that homeowner in there paying something, but you can't get a decision out of a service or their attorneys. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's a frustration shared by uh, the, the plaintiff's attorneys as well, and, and frankly, some of the servicers. So um, it is absolutely apparent that all of the proposals and programs so far have been absolute failures, and uh, any of the new proposals and programs are going to be a failure as well until we can get people to the table that have the ability to, to uh, make decisions, number one, and then ultimately take the losses. I think that's Part of the problem with even the, the program just announced by the Obama administration is we still haven't figured out exactly how to apportion the losses mm -hmm. that uh, exist in these files. And the figure that was mentioned in the press reports was $20 billion of a settlement to do some principal reduction. But uh, uh, that sounds like real money, but in the scheme of uh, trillions in the mortgage uh, market, it may not mean that many. Uh, would actually be required. Isn't that right? That number is absolutely obscene. And, and when you, when I as a you mean obscenely small? Obscenely small. Well, yeah, yeah, 20 billion is, is an obscenely small number. Again, we're talking about trillions of dollars worth of damage here. We're talking about the lenders and the servicers who have made billions of dollars on all this and continue to make billions of dollars. And the 20 uh, figure won't even scratch the surface. Um, the problem, the larger problem, is that we in this country have lost the capacity to um, take our lumps or to punish wrongdoing or to accept wrongdoing um, and, and, and punish it. And, and that's a real problem. And, and to float a number like that that is that small minimizes the problem and, and is frankly quite frightening to me both as a practitioner very involved in this, obviously, but just as a taxpayer. It, again, it minimizes the extent of this problem and, and shows me an administration that's totally out of touch with what's happening on the ground. 
Well, let's go back to uh, state court and foreclosure defense. Um, you, you started by saying uh, that you challenge these foreclosures from the outset and, and ask the question, who's suing and does that party who's trying to sue actually have the right to be there? What kind of results are you able to get? Are you able to get modifications as part of a defense? I, I think as attorneys, we have to be uh, aware that, you know, we, we are technicians. Um, mm -hmm. We're both technical um, uh, individuals, and but we're, we have to be practical about things. I, I view our job as attacking the pleadings um, from the very outset. We have a rule here in the office, and that is no pleading comes in from the other side, but that we don't respond to it in some substantive way. And um, asking very basic questions, a, a change in my practice came when lo young lawyers came in and started asking basic questions about these lawsuits. And it's fascinating that the very basics of pleading are being ignored in foreclosure cases, and primarily, or at least initially, is being able to identify who the plaintiff is. I'm, I'm looking here at my desk, and I see a plaintiff, Deutsche Bank National Trust Company, as trustee for the IndyMac Index Mortgage Loan Trust 2005-AR6 Mortgage Pass-Through Certificate, I had to take a breath, Series 2005-AR6 under the pooling and servicing agreements dated March 1, 2005, plaintiff. What in the world is that as a plaintiff? That's not a plaintiff that anybody ever taught you about in law school, and it's not a plaintiff that should ever appear in a case without a heck of a lot of explanation. But what I would do with, as we call them, alphabet suit plaintiffs like this is to say, hold on just a second, whether it be for in, through a motion to dismiss or a motion to strike. There's good uh, federal case law out there which says that um, you can challenge the capacity of any uh, individual in litigation through a motion to dismiss. And so that should be your first um, um, option is look at that plaintiff, and if you can't find where their registered agent is, um, it's time to file a motion to dismiss or a motion for more definite statement um, to allow us to identify who it is that's suing. Well, now, if you get if you get the case dismissed, if you're successful, where does that leave the homeowner? It leaves the homeowner in purgatory, and, and that's where uh, virtually all of our cases are, um, is uh, just a homeowner standing there in a home with a mortgage on it, but uncertain who they should be paying that mortgage to um, and who has the right to collect that mortgage. And I would suggest to you that um, this is the case with uh, most uh, mortgages all across the country. Whether you're in foreclosure or not, I think there are very real questions about who owns these mortgages and who has the right to be collecting these monthly mortgage payments. Well, let's talk about uh, when state court uh, is the best option as opposed to perhaps bankruptcy court. Uh, now, you're in a judicial foreclosure state. Um, so that may be part of why you're doing this in state court as opposed to jurisdictions that have non-judicial foreclosure, and it may be hard to get anyone's attention unless you file in bankruptcy. Uh, so what are your thoughts about um, you know, when, when to do this in state court, when to do it um, in bankruptcy court? Well, uh, here in Florida, we have a very good judicial process, and that is that all of these foreclosure cases are, are in front of uh, local judges in the state court. And uh, I think that emphasizes the need to have the judicial process. I uh, shudder to think, 
what kind of uh, shenanigans and fraud is occurring in non-judicial foreclosure states based on what we see here in foreclosure states where at least theoretically judges are looking at the pleadings and supervising these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can only imagine what kind of shenanigans is being played behind the scenes in these non-judicial foreclosure states. But I want everyone to think about the fact that um, many of the defenses that we're using successfully here in the state of Florida and other states um, didn't exist a few months or years ago. Uh, This is a rapidly evolving practice, and um, it it evolved because good attorneys um, worked hard. They took some risks in in filing pleadings and making claims that may not have been directly supported by case law, because frankly, there just wasn't case law. So um, I think even in non-judicial foreclosure states, attorneys need to be thinking about all avenues of attacking these cases. And I know there's some recent developments in the non-judicial states which get to the heart of whether or not these uh, plaintiffs that are filing the notices of default uh, have the right to do so. We also want to be looking at um, the uh, questions of uh, who the trustees are, and and it may be the entire um, uh, trustee system that exists within a state. So as attorneys, you have an obligation. I I think there's a moral imperative in this country right now for good ethical attorneys to be exploring all avenues to protect consumers. And I think the issues that you've mentioned that you've been raising about, you know, do you have the right to... Uh, foreclosure or even the right to payment, uh, that these are isu- these are issues that are being raised in bankruptcy court as well, and particularly in the non-judicial foreclosure states when the debtor uh, goes into Chapter 13 and the uh, mortgage uh, claim is being, um, you know, there's a proof of claim being filed in the court and there's documentation so that then you can raise all the same kind of issues that you're talking about. In, in the bankruptcy. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, there's a lot of uh, decisions, a lot of action heating up in our federal courts, particularly the bankruptcy courts, because our trustees are becoming aware uh, of these issues that I described. And, and I do not understand why more of our bankruptcy practitioners are not uh, objecting to proof of claim and using the very same defenses that we use in state court uh, in the context of bankruptcy, because it, the issues are exactly the same. When, when you have these alphabet soups that are filing proof of claims in bankruptcy, um, you need to be attacking them just as we do in state court. The, the, the issues are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was not so long ago that if any entity filed foreclosure in this state, good attorneys even would kind of shrug their shoulders and go, well, you're, you're getting sued for foreclosure and there's nothing we can do about it. But what we found in a very short order is that there, there certainly is something to be done about it, and especially in the bankruptcy context, uh, challenging those proofs of claim and um, really putting the, the people that are filing those, the creditors filing those proofs of claim through their paces. Um, you know, we're sort of talking in generalities, but when you get into the specifics of the documentation that that creditor might be using to support their uh, right to that claim, whether it be the endorsement that appears on the note, there are a lot of issues regarding how you verify the legitimacy of the um, endorsement. 
um, but then on the assignment of mortgage, um, is the assignment of mortgage valid or legitimate? Right. And this will, to some extent, vary from state to state. You know, the, the law of notes, uh, it's governed by the Uniform Commercial Code, but that can be interpreted uh, different ways in different states. Certainly, mortgage law is, is very different from state to state. Um, something I wanted to mention that we haven't talked about yet and ask you about is anti-deficiency statutes and uh, the difference between states where you have that kind of a statute and those where you don't. What's the situation in Florida on that? In Florida, uh, lenders have the right to collect deficiency. The difference between what uh, the, the contracted mortgage or note was and what they ultimately got from the property at foreclosure sale. Um, but uh, in many states where you don't have deficiency, the issues are not as significant. But um, the fundamental issue remains. Whomever is trying to collect a deficiency has to prove their right uh, to do so. And when we put them through their paces from an evidentiary perspective, you'll find that their ability to collect uh, these debts is, is going to be very much compromised. Mm -hmm. and, and I think um, there's a question of using bankruptcy. Um, if it's getting too complicated uh, to, to deal with a deficiency, I mean, sometimes that might be a simpler way than than raising all these paperwork issues, right, to just discharge the deficiency in bankruptcy. For many folks, bankruptcy is the right uh, answer to the question. Uh, you know, you've got other unsecured debts or other debts, then, then bankruptcy may very well be correct for you. But frankly, for most people, when they come into my office, and if the foreclosure is their only debt or their major debt, um, I, attacking it in state court first is uh, oftentimes most effective. And, and then not them, him, they don't have to go through bankruptcy. Um, even if they've got debt hanging out there but nobody's trying to collect it and they can't prove up their right to collect it, then we may not need to go down the bankruptcy route just yet. Well, we should probably turn to the big picture question of whether there's a solution, um, you know, that certainly everyone wants to see balance restored in the housing market, that these kinds of problems may be putting a drag on, you know, the uh, prices going back up. Uh, some say that delaying foreclosure, um, having foreclosure uh, sales be doubtful as to whether the buyers are getting title, that all of that may be standing in the way of this kind of um, clearing of the market so that we can get back to normalcy. What's your view about how we get out of this problem? I've got the magic answer how we get out of this problem <laughs> all across the country. Okay. Put everybody back to work tomorrow, and we get out of this problem. And I'm, I'm serious about this. I mean, we keep talking about what's the solution to this. Well, we can have all the legislative fixes we want. We can all be sharp lawyers working at a table and mediating everything in good faith. But the bottom line is if we don't figure out how to get people back to work again and get this country's economy moving, then we cannot solve this problem at all, period. So that has to be uh, the attention of everyone, is how do we solve the larger economic problems that confront this country? And frankly, um, that's a very difficult uh, task and is not going to happen for a while. So with that as the reality check, then we have to start asking ourselves, what do we do with these mortgage debts that people just cannot pay? Um, in the state of Florida, they estimate there'll be some 560,000 foreclosure cases. You know, across the country, there are millions of foreclosure cases. And I frequently ask this question. 
what if the banks were able to wave a magic wand tomorrow and grant every single foreclosure and throw the millions of Americans out into the street that weren't making their mortgage payments? What would we do? Who would move into those homes that we've just thrown people out into the street? The fact of the matter is that because of larger economic problems, um, there are not uh, families that can move into these homes. And, and that should drive all of our decision-making, because um, oftentimes, if not most times, the best resolution for the plaintiff and certainly for the defendants and absolutely for the community is to figure out a way to keep these homeowners in their homes but making payments. And so we have to be pressing uh, both at the, the trial court, bankruptcy, and, and community level, all the way up to the, the national level, to figure out reasonable and equitable ways to keep people in their homes making payments. Um, I just don't think that we are able to resolve the very significant paperwork problems that exist. Um, and so we're going to have to start talking about some more pragmatic solutions um, about keeping people in homes and understanding that, that the ownership to the mortgage and note is, is very much in question. Well, thank you, Matthew. Uh, this has been uh, an interesting conversation. I know it's going to continue uh, the whole question of uh, what we're going to do in response to the mortgage crisis and how we're going to get out of it. I thank you for joining us today in this American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. Thank you very much. appreciate the opportunity.